The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, we'll hear an overview of recent ACB legislative activity from Eric Bridges. But ACB Reports for April 2008 begins with spring and summer fashions for ladies. Here's Lynn Cooper. The first element the human eye sees, so the first element of our look that our observer will see is color. And color is, as you can imagine, Mike, for spring and summer, it's when all the designers go, yee-haw, the sun is brighter and uh, colors in nature are coming up, so to come out the colors from the designers. They want to keep it fresh to keep us buying new things. So every season, new colors will come out that are a primary theme. This season, lilac, which would be shades of purple. Not so much deep purple. That would be more wintry. But a deeper shade of lilac, which is like the lilac flower, light purple, all the way to a very pastel. And then green, which is kind of wild. Of course, it's a color in nature, but a grass green. I'm seeing really even very expensive handbags, shoes. And usually my green is not done a lot in fashion, especially never in uh, winter and fall, because it is not a color that really reflects up on people's face. It makes you, as you can imagine, look kind of nauseous. So it is uh, to be worn as a fun accent, and this is another place with these colors to inexpensively be current, whether it be a scarf, a pair of flats, a little clutch handbag, you know, little pieces we've picked up inexpensively. Also big are bold colors such as daffodil yellow, like the flower, orange, bright orange, fuchsia, and that is another name for a bright, deep pink, and a cobalt blue. And a cobalt blue, these are not really primary colors, but they are bright colors. Here's a tip for our listeners. If your outfit is bright, let's say you have a bright colored dress, accessories must be neutral. Go to a silver, go to a gold, go to a, a straw, or vice versa. If you have a basic color ivory white black dress, then you can pep it up with accessories, like a bangle bracelet or something is a way to uh, be current, which is important, but also to not spend a boodles and boodles of money. Major trends waltzing down the runways in U.S. and Europe include, and there are a handful of them, florals. And this is probably no surprise to anyone. It's not like the designers, you know, really gave themselves headaches figuring this one out. But uh, we have big and little floral prints. Now, remember, when we wear a big print, the bolder the colors, the bolder the print, the bigger we look. So if we want to do the floral prints, it's a great place to add them in a scarf. That's another little tip. It is a great place to add them maybe in a blouse or a shirt under a jacket and to be current but not to go wild and to make too much of a statement that we may not want to be making. Bold and colorful florals, and we're seeing them, Mike, in floral pattern slacks, skirts, dresses, blouses, even shoes and handbags. The next big look that you're going to be seeing a lot of is what I'm referring to is out of Africa, and so too do other trend reports. It's the safari look. 
this is a really good place if you're going to buy a jacket, a pantsuit or something for an investment or that you're planning on not just giving away at the end of this season, I would suggest going to a safari look. And what I mean by safari look is in a khaki, and that's a tan, a very, very light brown color fabric, usually cotton. It can be a blend. But a safari jacket looks just like what its name is. It looks like a jacket you would wear on a safari, and it has two pockets, usually patch pockets, one on top of the other on each side of the jacket, usually a belt. It's a good classic look. Animal prints are big, and you can always add on chunky tribal jewelry. You know, big brass stores like Pier 1 are good for buying inexpensive ethnic looking jewelry. So that's a good place if you wish to invest in a piece and know pretty much that you can't go wrong wearing a safari look no matter what uh, spring and summer you're in. The next one I'm going to ask our listeners to exercise caution and I say danger Will Robinson on this one and the look is transparent and I'm sure we all have horror stories. I know I do speaking around the country hearing from my friends with visual impairments about how some friend or family or salesperson decided to turn them on to a transparent outfit, top, blouse, what have you, and it really was inappropriate. We really have to make sure, if we're not sure if it feels transparent, then ask, is this appropriate? And if we do want to wear something transparent for evening or for, uh, for dress up, then we make sure that we have a layer underneath which is not uh, translucent. We are seeing peekaboo cutouts, let's say in dresses, a couple inches around the hem will be sheer in a solid uh, fabric dress. Best left for evening, and these are usually washed out tones such as pastels and real soft colors. Probably the least wearable of all these looks. Then of course, as I said, the bright colors are really, really big, can't go wrong in an accessory or a uh, solid uh, piece. And then we have big, bold prints, Mike, and these are probably, you know, not a real stretch either because it seems like spring and summer is a time to have fun and you're outside, you're, you know, you're going wild, you're not covered up with coats. These are in dresses primarily, but they almost look like a modern art canvas. And in many of these designers, you're seeing really brush strokes, like if you said to somebody, here's this dress and it's a shift, which means it's a very simple sleeveless dress. Just paint me a picture, but don't be too uh, careful. And that is what you're seeing a lot of. And then we have a look, which is Greco-Roman goddess look. And this also, I think, is best left for the evening. Flowing, one-shoulder dresses where all the fabric is gathered, toga style. And this goes along, Mike, with the gladiator-wrapped sandals. And once again, not a place unless you have $10 bazillion, in my estimation, to be investing. But gladiator sandals right out of the movies are sandals that are usually flat, although they are done in heels as well, and then they strap up, they crisscross up to the knee. And that is a real big look worn with a very simple shorter dress, sleeveless or, uh, you know, mini skirt, depending on our age and our appropriateness. That's a big look the Greco-Roman thing. And then metallics. And some years it's, oh, 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 only silver, oh, 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 only gold. But this season, it's anything goes as far as metallic, silver, gold, copper, and bronze. Another big look is boyfriend dressing. And that is exactly what it says. It's gender bending, really. You know, it's women 
wearing what would traditionally be men's wear, but sort of um, men's wear from maybe the turn of the 20th century. Tuxedo-style trousers, a cummerbund, and that's the gathered about six-inch wide covering of the waistband that a man wears in a tuxedo. Tailored vests, boyfriend blazers, which are these big, oversized, really looks like it just threw on your boyfriend's blazer. Hats, fedoras, of course not in wool, fedoras. A real good way to approach that would be straw. And bow ties. And what we're doing, instead of real bow ties, sort of that like 1980s power dressing thing, we're seeing bow tie blouses where the actual um, blouse has a tie as part of it. And another bit of caution is the next look, and that's the pajama game. Two-piece pajama looks are being shown where it's almost that underwear is becoming day wear. This is really one to wave the uh, red flag for. But once again, what works on the runway may actually get one fired or arrested in real life. So it's a real good idea before one goes out, no matter how hip it is, wearing a lingerie or a bra top as the top of your outfit to really talk to your human mirror, really make sure that it is appropriate. And, you know, if you're clubbing, that might be appropriate, but we have to make sure that we're not going to be uh, embarrassing ourselves. Bye-bye ultra-low-ride pants for women. For the longest time, the low, low waist, just over one's pelvic bone, the uh, waistline was in pants, and um, particularly in jeans. That also started to translate to dress pants. Well, now the pendulum has swung, and we're seeing really high-waisted pants, and especially with really wide legs in both dress slacks and jeans. So we either go very skinny or very wide leg, and bell bottoms are big again, huge again. And then a dress to the ankle is returning to what we used to call the maxi dress. And I always have to giggle because if you have to tell people, I I watched a show the other night, and the woman came on wearing a, a dress to her ankles, and she said, oh, what do you think of my maxi dress? Well, to me, it's never a good idea, unless you're six foot two, to wear a skirt to your ankles, unless it's for formal, because it usually will shorten a person. So never, in my estimation, a good idea to wear something you have to constantly explain. Hemlines, ladies, are at the knee, or micro minis. And once again, for our younger listeners, that's where it's at. And then, as I said, that maxi skirt, which would be at the ankle or just above, Slack silhouette is wide, flowy legs or ultra-narrow. Shoes, Mike, we're seeing T-strap shoes, which actually forms a T. If you look down at your shoe, the top part of the T goes across your toes, and then the trunk of the T comes up the top of your foot. We're seeing flats, hallelujah, and really high heels. So the ballet flats remain, as do the really high heels with platforms which make them a little bit easier to walk in, meaning the platform of the shoe, the sole of the shoe, actually has an inch or so being raised so that it makes the high heel easier to walk on. Open toe, high heel booties, if you can imagine, and these are often in prints and patents and various colors, but they are a booty with pretty good-sized heel and lace up, but the toe area is open. Once again, that is so fashion-forward that if you have a lot of extra money laying around and nothing else to do with it, go for it. 
And then, as I said before, the gladiator-style sandals that come all the way up to your knee, patterned wedges, and gigantic, odd-shaped, huge novelty heels where the designer really, in my estimation, did them for art where they almost should be under glass in a museum, where the heel is actually put on the shoe in a goofy way, and it's kind of an optical illusion. And as we wrap up, handbags, and this is another tip for investing in a look and being current, clutches, and that means not a shoulder bag, although they are being done, but clutches. Now, if we have our hands on our service animal leash or we have our hands full of... uh, bags and what have you, not a good idea because it may not be practical, but it is for evening and for dinner a nice look. It is light. You can just uh, hold it in your hand and uh, you're set. Tribal patterns, a real nice place, um, and they're being done inexpensively all across the board. Beads, stitching, textures, and you can really pump up a look this way. Patchwork is being done too. In hosiery, ladies, nude, color legs or no hose. But we have to be very careful because, especially for our listeners in business, very few businesses find no hose appropriate. And then we also have to make sure if we do wear nylons with sandals, and a lot of companies are not always crazy about wearing sandals in the business situation as well, we have to make sure that we don't have those little reinforced toes on our pantyhose. So you really have to make sure when you buy the hose, you ask the salesperson, please tell me, is this all nude, meaning there's no little reinforced toe, which will look simply dorky. Uh, Hairstyles all over the board, long, loose hair or buns and updos. And then another real hip look is cropped shortcuts with longer bangs. And finally, makeup, dramatic dark eyes and red or pink lips. And one tip on this is that Always a good idea when we're doing our face, we want to select one focus on the face for the color, extreme color emphasis. Either it's our lips, bright lips, or dramatic eyes, not both. That is spring and summer for 2008. Lynn Cooper developed the Mirrors Project as part of her personal and professional effort to make the world accessible to all people and to offer positive reflections to people of all abilities. These personal image segments heard on ACB Reports are an ongoing part of the Mirrors Project. Lynn has established an email address through which to receive your feedback, comments, and suggestions regarding these personal image segments. That address is mirrors1usa at yahoo.com that's m-i-r-r-o-r-s one usa at yahoo.com during the legislative seminar conducted by the american council of the blind in february Eric Bridges gave this report on recent legislative activity. The very first week that I was employed by ACB, there was a very hot issue that was kind of bursting all over the place. It was in the news. It was in all the coalition meetings that I went to. And it surrounds voting legislation. In early 2007, Congressman Rush Holt from New Jersey introduced H.R. 811, The thrust of this voting legislation was to verified paper trail for folks that were voting. This meant with a lot of 
hand-wringing within the disability community and outside the disability community as well. The bill is enormous for starters. It's a couple hundred pages. This has been essentially his pet project since about the year 2000. He's introduced various iterations of voting rights legislation. When I came on board, they were holding hearings. They had just marked up the bill. It had about 240 co-sponsors, most of whom were Democrats. I was asked by uh, the Rights Task Force of the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities, which is a membership organization of probably 100 organizations that all come together and participate in different task forces to, as best we can, provide a, a united front to folks on the Hill and in federal agencies. I was asked to serve on a special working group that consisted of about five folks from five different organizations to deal with the Holt legislation because there's a lot of talk and a lot of bluster that this was going to pass the House and it wasn't going to be good for people with disabilities. And frankly, from my standpoint, it probably wasn't going to be good for folks who are blind or visually impaired because it was seeking to do away with electronic voting. There was a lot of meetings, teleconferences that went on concerning accessibility of voting versus accuracy and security. That was the choice that Congressman Holt and others in the House were essentially forcing the disability community to make a choice. And what we decided in this group was that we're not security experts, we're not accuracy experts. We'll leave that to other people. But what we are are advocates. And if there is going to be a piece of legislation that calls for verified paper ballots, that's okay as long as it's accessible to folks who are blind or visually impaired. And how do we go about figuring that out? Congressman Holt's folks are an interesting group of people. Essentially what wound up happening, and this, and this happens from time to time, when you're up there and you, you see how the different egos work, the Holt staff dug their heels in and did not want to negotiate. And so we said, okay, well, we're not going to negotiate with you either. And what happened was Congressman Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, found out that this was going on. And he essentially threatened to take the bill away from Congressman Holt and manage it himself. Essentially, it's taking away the pride and joy of one member and giving it to leadership to manage because that particular member hasn't been able to manage the process. What he said was, okay, well, let's see what you all want. He prides himself on being a defender of the rights of folks with disabilities. And uh, he went to bat for us. And we had some text inserted into the bill that I think was positive. However, what occurred during this time was that there were so many other issues outside of the disability realm that took place that what you had were states like New York and, and others that were wanting special privileges within the bill as well. There was a lot of weird wrangling that went on, and all because essentially the bill wasn't drafted all that well. It didn't take into account a lot of constituencies' concerns. So where does it stand now? Well, it stands in the same place that it stood in July of last year, which is nowhere, and it's probably not going to go anywhere either because it's controversial. So ACB never took a formal stance on this. Here's part of the reason why. We wanted to be able to negotiate. There were other organizations out there that came out in favor of this piece of legislation, or they absolutely opposed it, and they were completely locked out of the negotiations afterward. 
we feel like we were able to make a positive impact on this not-so-great piece of legislation, but to make it better. And ultimately, this isn't going to pass. But what we did was provide a face to the organization with folks on the Hill where we were able to be honest brokers through this whole thing, and we were recognized as being that. Now let's move on to a little thing I like to call NLS, Digital Talking Book Funding. This was the other thing that was taking place as I was coming to work at ACB, and it just rolled right on into January because Congress wasn't able to pass all of its appropriations for federal funding. $19 million was the original funding request from NLS for the Digital Talking Book program for the start of it. As you all know, $12.5 million was allotted in each of the House and Senate appropriations bills, and ultimately that's what they received. This was something that from my perspective, while a little disappointing, it did not affect the startup of this program, which is good. There are organizations out there that are making this another one of their legislative seminar imperatives. I think what they're seeking, again, most likely this year is going to be another $19 million or so. I don't know that they'll get that, uh, but they will get a good portion of it again. And this whole issue with the GIO report that came out last summer that had some factual inaccuracies that sort of, I think, clouded the waters enough with the appropriators that they said, well, we're not going to fund them at the total rate. And quite honestly, not too many folks outside of the military got what they requested. But it begins, and that's good for us. The program begins. Next, we have the Higher Education Act which was introduced by Congressman George Miller in uh, November of 07. Its bill number is H.R. 4137. ACB was approached in mid-November by the House Education and Labor Committee to review some language that was going to go into the higher ed bill. The crux of the language that the policy folks were asking us to look at was regarding accessible materials for higher ed students. One of the provisions in this bill that, by the way, has since passed the House called for a, a federal advisory commission to look at accessible materials and how to make that happen. Another provision called for state demonstration programs to take place. All of this is, I think, a positive step in Congress's recognition that more needs to be done and that in the higher ed world, it's a very different world than K through 12. What is a book? What is a syllabus? Or Lord knows anything. Many of you have gone to college and have had all sorts of interesting things that you've been expected to read that haven't been bound in a book form. So there's a lot of challenges that blind and visually impaired students face these days. So this Federal Advisory Commission sought to include several members from the disability community what we were able to do is to have added to it additional members from the blindness community. One of the downsides to language like this, though, is that there's not much teeth in language of this nature. It didn't make for any hard deadline implementation or authority to implement recommendations. So our view on this was this is a good first step, but this isn't something that we're going to jump up and down about. The Senate has a lot of stuff on its plate that it has to deal with. I don't know where higher ed sits in the pecking order. I do know that during our discussions in November, 
that there was a commitment from the House and the Senate to get it passed before the end of this particular Congress. However, having said that, there's been a lot of things that have come up with regard to FISA and economic stimulus and a whole bunch of things that thankfully now have passed. So it'll be interesting to see what gets funneled up to the top and what just sort of sits and lags. The last little thing I wanted to talk to you about, which I actually was an active participant in before I came to work at ACB, is the Randolph Shepard JWAD modernization. And not much has gone on with that. Um, I understand that this is one of the imperatives from last year, talking about moving the discussion draft or these theories forward. This particular initiative was started by the folks in the Senate Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in late 2005 when there was a hearing held. And then in 2006, the Senate Health Committee folks met with a whole slew of different disability advocates to get their take on the Javits-Wagner O'Day program and the Randolph-Shepard program, what folks thought should be changed or modified, how to bring them into the 21st century. And one of the interesting things that happened at the end of 2006 is there was a, an election that occurred and the Democrats took over. And the Democrats had a different agenda. And the Randolph-Shepard and JWAD modernization stuff wasn't at the top of their list. And so here we sit. The Randolph-Shepard and, and Javits-Wagner O'Day stuff is on hold right now. And the reason why I said that this was interesting to me was that for those of you that don't know what I did in my previous job, I worked for National Industries for the Blind, which operates under the Javits-Wagner O'Day program. The program itself is now known as the Ability One program. The act is still the act, but the program is different, apparently. I participated in that. I participated from the product side. NIB has always supported the Randolph-Shepard priority. I would imagine they will continue to do so. Had the opportunity, just as a quick aside, to meet with Michael Malver and the folks from Minnesota last year. I was the person on the other side of the table last year working for Congressman John Klein from Minnesota. And uh, the folks from ACB of Minnesota came in and talked to me about the issues that you all covered last year and uh, had a great time. And it was a very enlightening experience because I've been used to being on the side of the table that I'm on now and not on the other side. The more that this organization and its members can be viewed as honest brokers, folks that are going to give you their opinion, sometimes passionately, which is fine, but the more that you all can be active on the Hill and in your districts, getting to know and maintain relationships with legislators, the better off this organization is going to be. We, as an organization, have a very different view, and in my opinion, a, a more logical and rational view of what blind and visually impaired folks want out of life. With that, I think there's a lot of opportunity for this organization over the next several years to get its agenda not only heard, but moved forward and ultimately implemented. That was Eric Bridges, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, Washington, D.C. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. 
Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world. This is ACB Radio.